Welcome to the Dream Chasers and Changemakers podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you identify? I am a really busy changemaker. I am gay. I identify primarily as creative. Please tell our listeners what you want to tell us about your story. They were all there for him, pointing guns and stuff at my car. My dad committed suicide when I was 13. I'm not out to my family. What breaks your heart? We have the capacity to fucking carry life inside of us. Our autonomy has been taken from us over and over and over again. She did not want to talk about it at all, even though the two of us had been through it. What is something people assume of you? She's so loud and she's brown and she won't shut up. People assume that I'm a bitch. <laughs> I knew you were What <laughs> gives you hope? that power of conversation. The depth of your story was also my story. Human connection, that's what we're all looking for. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dream Chasers and Changemakers. This podcast is a growing community and brave space where people generously share their stories on what it took to chase their dreams and change their lives and the lives of others. My name is Ali Cardinelli. And I'm Betty Carricabudu. Ali, I'm so excited about today's episode because we are talking to my mentor, my life coach, my idol, my best friend, my first pretend mom, my on-call doctor. She's sitting right next to me but can't see my notes so that she doesn't yell at me. We are talking to <laughs> my sister. Hi. Hi, sister. Are we going to tell your sister's name? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a secret. It's a secret. So we are talking to Dr. Stephanie Ross. Hi, everybody. Who I call Nanny, but you have my permission to call her Nanny. Oh. <laughs> well, I only know her as Nanny, so. Yeah. Uh, Nanny, you're a little far away from the microphone. Okay, hi. That's much better. So, hi, Nanny. Hi, Dr. Nanny. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I am so excited to talk to you. I am not the only one of Betty's friends who says, we feel like we know her. Um, because <laughs> That's true. Betty is, yeah, Betty is not exaggerating when she introduced you as all those things. It's clear that you're super important to her and her life. Um, so I feel like I know you, but I'm very excited to actually speak to you and get to know you. Wonderful. I'm excited to be here. So most of my friends do know her because she is top three things that I talk about because she is the coolest person that I know. Sorry, everybody else. But let me finally and formally introduce her. My sister. I'm a little insulted. I'm sorry. <laughs> My, Am I the second coolest? Yes. Yes. You're, okay. you're tied in second place with a few people, but sorry, she's the first. She is a doctor. She's an obstetrician and gynecologist, an OBGYN, and she specialized in high-risk maternal fetal medicine. She has worked on so these are all her accolades. Ready? Ready. How long do we have? Endless amounts of times. Okay, perfect. Besides her regular clinical stuff and reading ultrasounds, she's worked on medical cases that she's reviewed for the DOJ. She's an editor on medical journals. She is the director of the residency program at the medical school she works at. She is something super important that I always forget and I always hype up, but it's along the lines of she is one of 10 people 
that gets to review laws and policies oh. in Washington, D.C. It's really important. <laughs> so a lot of laws that she's like cracking up. She can explain it better later. Okay. She is a mom of two amazing young ladies. And of course, oh, she's also the biggest Disney fan ever. She knows every Broadway musical ever written. And most importantly, she's my sister of all of those. That's the most important one. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode's basically over. I already said all the things. Perfect. So thank you for having me. Please rate and follow us. Review us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we still need to ask her all of our questions. And I would love to hear from you, Nanny. Like we hear from all of our guests about your dream chaser and change maker story. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are further from what Betty has already said and how you identify? First of all, I cannot believe that my tiny sister just <laughs> put all those things out there. Um, to me, I'm a very normal human being. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> well, literally at like 11 o'clock at night, she'll be like, be right back. I have to go do a C-section. I'll be like, okay, bye. <laughs> Well, yes, I do that. So I don't know. I feel like I'm very honored, actually, to be on this podcast. I think um, I did have this dream of becoming a doctor and going and and working with women who have complicated issues. I think that's a dream that I, I did have to chase quite a bit. My path was a little bit circuitous. I started out teaching, which was also a huge passion of mine. But I realized that it just wasn't enough to fully scratch the itch that I had and in wanting to make a huge difference in people's lives because I felt like my kids, I just wasn't reaching them in the way that I thought that I could. And so I went back to my original plan, which was medicine. And through that, I've been able to to meet all of my dreams and all of my goals and then sneak in the teaching too. So I was able to keep passion number one and number two in line by kind of unifying all of my loves into one career where I'm not only taking care of my own patients and being able to to impact their lives one-on-one, -on -one, but then also training the next generation of doctors so that each graduating class I have of five residents, each one of them is going to take care of hundreds of women in their lives. So in this one class mm, that I'm graduating wow. next month, that's a thousand plus women that I can say that their health has been impacted by something I taught. So that's really special. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Just a normal woman. <laughs> wow. Isn't she awesome? Women who are pregnant are such a unique population, you know, because I, I tell my students and my residents all the time, it's the only part of the hospital where healthy people go to do healthy, normal things. You're having a baby. I always call it. Yeah, I always call it the happy, the happiest part of the hospital. Right? It, usually, it, usually I, <laughs> it's this roller coaster because it's either the happiest part of the hospital or the most devastating in a lot of ways where sometimes I end up having to give news that's not great. Right. That's true. But that's a special honor in its own way. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh wow. Uh <laughs> uh fuck. <laughs> Episode over. <laughs> there were other questions. You know, she's an OBGYN, but then since she overachieves in everything, she went to extra doctor school to be specialize in high risk pregnancies. And it's really cool even where she did her fellowship, because she got a lot of experience which she'll share in a second. But what made you decide high-risk pregnancies? So first of all, when I was kind of in this transition phase where I was like, okay, I know I want to leave high school education. I know that education is maybe not, you know, the pure goal that I have here. So I want to go back to medicine. So I was in this huge mental debate about, do I want to be a midwife or do I want to be a doctor? So I simultaneously applied to medical school and to the FIU midwifery school 
um, through their college of nursing. And it was this huge debate. But so at the end of the day, I knew that pregnancy and childbirth was definitely in my destiny. Um, and I ended up going to medical school because much like my petite sister, I am a little bit bossy <laughs> and I don't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> and I knew <laughs> that <laughs> I knew that the, uh, the medicine route would leave me as, you know, the buck stops here and I get to be the one that calls the shots at the end of the day with nobody hovering over me. You are a boss. <laughs> she really is. I try. So I have a question. How, how old were you when you left teaching to go into medical school? I was 23. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. When I was a teacher, I was 21 through 23 years old. So you did everything right on time. Oh. <laughs> and earlier because she graduated. A little 17. early. Yes. <laughs> so I had that luxury of a little bit of time because of that geeky skipping a grade. Our mom homeschooled her. Yes. And took great. her around the whole country in a pickup truck. And they did. <laughs> she's, she's like red in the face. But our mom homeschooled her and they went to almost all of the 48 continental U.S. states, right? And then um, when she came back, she was such a geeky, smart girl that they let her skip a grade. And then she graduated <laughs> early. Wow. Yeah. Yes. It's in the DNA. That's Layla. Or could, exactly. could be Layla. It most for sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We are a very dorky family. We are. <laughs> I think nerd status is an important thing to keep. So then why high risk? So then I... Fine, go through medical school. Fine, go through residency, starting residency. And I'm like, oh, but I love everything. I love the surgery. I love this. I love that. But then come to figure out that what really brings me the most satisfaction is A, super complicated things like the run of the mill routine. There's nothing really going on is not very intellectually stimulating, probably going back to that dorky background, right? Like <laughs> I want to do some mental gymnastics. And so if you come in and you're just normal, it's like, okay, great. You're normal. But <laughs> any anybody can do that. What I liked was like, oh, you have diabetes and you have this tumor and you have this, oh, and you're pregnant. So like that to me was much more interesting because I felt like I could make more difference for that person. The truth is people have been obviously being pregnant and having babies since the beginning of civilization. Otherwise we wouldn't exist. So a normal, uncomplicated pregnancy, any monkey can take care of. It's not complicated. <laughs> Oh my God, you're gonna you're gonna insult some people. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I wanted to be involved where I could be useful, where there is a little bit of a twist, right. where it's not the routine, where it's not the ordinary. And it takes a little bit of training to recognize number one, which ones are the ones that need the extra help. But then once you recognize it, what do you do about it? So that's where I wanted to focus my attentions. And that's where the high risk came in. Tell her where you studied and how. Oh, that was so was great. <laughs> so I was super lucky that um, I was able to find a fellowship spot in Utah, which is such a unique part of the country because the prevailing culture there is the Mormon culture. Right. And one of the big values of the Mormon church is that they are, they, they strongly believe that they are creating God's army. And so part of your job as a practicing Mormon is to produce God's army. So you're charged with this, this job of having a large family. So for somebody who's studying pregnancy and childbirth, going somewhere where the normal routine for a family is to have five, six children was perfect because mm -hmm. there's so many births happening all the time. <laughs> so it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was a really wonderful place to go train. <laughs> Allie, you want me to tell you something else that she told me once that's going to make you really happy? Yeah. <laughs> When I asked her, like, why OBGYN or whatever, she's like, because I don't want to see penises all day. <laughs> That's a true story. She's like, I don't want to see them ever again. So, yeah, she I'm gets kidding. to not have But vagina, it. it's 
she's down. <laughs> I mean, I actually don't even see those every day, but, you know, occasionally. But certainly, penises only on ultrasound. <laughs> the only penises we need to see in a picture ever. <laughs> <laughs> only dick pics we like. <laughs> With arrows and highlighting and everything. (laughs) My favorite. It sounds like everything in your life went really smoothly. And something we like to cultivate here is a vulnerable, brave space. So in whatever aspect of your life, can you think of a time where things didn't go as smoothly and how it was planned and how you got through that? When my dad didn't let you go to Coconut Grove. (laughs) (laughs) When your dad didn't let me do anything besides breathe. Um, I think early on in my, like in my life, um, I thought that I had everything together and I had this great husband and I had this great career and everything was totally on track. And then I graduated and I moved to Tampa and I got my first job. And then it became very quickly apparent that this home life that I had built, like everything with my career was on this projectile toward space that was fantastic. Like really I could, you know, everything was lining up that my career was right on track and I was going to reach all the goals that I had set for myself. So, but this other area of my life that I couldn't control was my home life. And I thought that I had everything together and that I was like fully under control and that, you know, my kids are so perfect and my husband is so perfect and everything is great. And then I kind of woke up to the fact that I was sort of lying to myself and that it wasn't so perfect. And my kids are probably the best thing in my planet besides I, I count Betty as a kid, honestly. <laughs> she does. Because <laughs> I tell everybody that she was my first daughter. And so, like, really, the three of them <laughs> are the best thing in my life. But my marriage, which I also thought was on that same level, it turned out it really wasn't. And there was a lot about it that I was kind of in denial about. And there was a lot about it that really was not healthy. And so once I finally was able to come to that realization, then that next, so there's the, the moment of, oh my God, this is actually really unhealthy for me. And this is not only unhealthy for me, but this is showing a horrible example to my two young daughters mm-hmm. kind of waking up one day and being like, if they come home with a boyfriend or a fiance who is a kind of a reinterpretation of their father, I'm going to feel like I have failed them. And I have allowed them to to envision that this is normal and healthy. And that is that was when I kind of woke up and I said, oh my God, I have to do something about this. But then that's really hard. That next step of, okay, I know I have to do something about it. But then the next step of actually turning that thought into action, mm. that is really so much harder than it sounds. So it took me a good... I'm going to say six months to a year to really kind of make that leap forward. And then from that to then dealing with the aftermath, that was probably the worst time of my life. Like those two years of the combination of knowing this has to happen, announcing that it's going to happen and then making it happen and then living through it. That was pretty tough. I would definitely not wish that upon anybody. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. But it's over now. And I can say for sure that the ugly part of it is done. And now everything's back on the up and up. And so, you know, I feel like my kids are in a good space. It's not easy to be the kids of divorced parents. And there's a lot of like, oh, my God, I left my shoes at dad's house. And oh, wait, but this book is at dad's house. And oh, but we have to go do this. And oh, can you pay for this field trip? And, you know, there's a lot of like juggling of stuff. 
but I feel like emotionally, we've all, all four of us reached a better place where I think the kids fully understand that they are loved in just two different homes. And I think that they appreciate the fact that they have parents who adore them, even though we don't live in the same building. So I don't know. I think they're doing okay. I'm definitely doing much better. I can say we're past the dark. Mm -hmm. That's great. (laughs) Ah, Manny. I'm very proud of her for not crying because she's a crier. (laughs) It's close. (laughs) (laughs) I wish Heepo wasn't a thing because I can sit here and be like, tell us your most craziest story about this or your craziest story about that. Why did you just call Hippa Heepa? (laughs) (laughs) That's the Westchester version. (laughs) I wish Hippa. Yeah, I I have a question. Why are your accents so different? Mm. Well, she just said that yesterday. She remember you said yesterday that. So we uh, were spending the day yesterday with my boyfriend who had just met Betty for the first time. And um, at one point he and I were on our own and he was he was laughing and he's like, you know, when you're talking to your sister, you have this accent that I've never heard you have before. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I get it, too. It's (laughs) it's really embarrassing. (laughs) because i'm not from miami so when i get it it's just really confusing for everyone (laughs) (laughs) one time after spending a lot of time with betty i came home for like christmas break and my sister was seeing someone and she he pulled my sister to the side and goes is your sister hispanic (laughs) (laughs) just your sister by herself (laughs) yeah just me alone i just thought of something that might not be a hippa violation but um, <laughs> um, so in one of her episodes, Ali shares about her adoption story and how it happened. And just FYI, just so you know, this one piece, when Ali was born, it was the adoption was already in process. And this was in Brazil in the 80s. But Ali's American family wasn't there to pick her up yet. And the doctor was like, oh, just take the baby home. So she just took the baby home and Ali was just in her house. So imagine one day you just show up and you're like, oh, the parents will be here from another country in two months. Don't worry about it. (laughs) And you just kept it. But have you ever been in the room for an adoption exchange or anything adoption related? Yeah, I've been involved in a lot of deliveries, actually where there was a pre-planned adoption, there's uh, a lot of, I don't know, kind of subtle differences. Like when you're doing the ultrasound, you don't devote a lot of time to like, oh, look at the cute feet, look at the cute hands. I usually will just ask them ahead of time, do you want pictures for the adoptive parents? Do you want pictures for you separately? Because sometimes they do want a memory of it. Um, And then you definitely have to, you know, talk to them before things get into the heat of the moment about what do you want after this baby's born? Do you want us to like immediately take the baby to another room? Do you want to spend some time together? Do you want some photos together? Do you not? Um, because everybody's so different about their perceptions and their their wants for that moment and the closure that they want and how do they want to get it. My heart rate has just raised so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's um yeah, it's really it's and it's very interesting. You know, sometimes the moms will share what their reasoning is and sometimes they won't and you know it's it's very unique there's also a pretty decent sized population i don't know why tampa seems to be a a place for this but apparently in france using a surrogate for a pregnancy is illegal and so there's some oh. connection between france and tampa where we have several french couples who find tampa surrogates tampanese surrogates tampanese tampanites <laughs> tampons um, tampons. <laughs> tampons. <laughs> so 
so yeah, you'll be in the middle of an ultrasound and they'll be like on WhatsApp FaceTiming with somebody in France and they're like, bonjour, here's your baby. And so, you know, that has happened multiple times. Betty, do it. What? Do what? Be a surrogate for French parents. She would love that because we love France together. We do. <laughs> I volunteer your uterus as tribute. Perfect. <laughs> as tribute. Oh, that's fun. Did any of that happen in Utah? Surrogacy, yes, but in Utah, it was more often family members, mm. like the sister or the cousin or the whatever. It was somebody that they knew almost always. Oh, wow. Mm hmm. Cool. Did you ever bring a baby home? Oh my God, no, but I really wanted to. <laughs> there was this, uh, like my first year or two in Asheville when I was doing my residency, there were these little twin boys and they were so cute and they were so like wrinkly and ugly. They looked like old men and they were in this little bassinet Aww. together and I wanted them. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted them so bad, but you can't do that. Aww. Apparently that's frowned upon. You can in Brazil. Apparently. <laughs> I should <laughs> Well, another big thing that Nanny does is she does a lot of women's health education. She's gone to her daughter's schools to teach about periods and, and the Girl Scouts and the Girl Scouts. And they told you not to talk about tampons. Right? They did. No, they told me not to talk about sex. Anything oh, yeah. related to sex. It's a Catholic school. So. Yeah. What was that like for you? Did it make you want to talk more about sex? Honestly. So then I kind of found ways to weave it in. So what we did was we... um. We were, it was me and then I kind of coerced a couple of my colleagues and I was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to split up the kids and the parents and then I'll take the kids and I brought tampons and pads and we had cups of water and I was like, here, put the, the tampon in the water cup. and the diva cup. And we talked about things, underwear and all the different things. But then my friend took the parents and I was like, it is your job to not leave this room until you say the words anal sex. And so <laughs> we made sure that all of the a uh, conversation happened with the parents and some of the parents were like, oh, they want to put it in where? And so <laughs> right in your butt, Catherine. <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> yes. Right in your butt. <laughs> I love it. Tell her about the time that I always do this to Nanny. I'll be like, do you remember when? And she's like, no, Betty, I oh my don't. God. Do you remember that day you were wearing a green T-shirt and we were watching this TV show about rainbows? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just tell me the story because I don't remember. The story about when you had to teach these women, and I think they were migrant workers or In something. In Utah. And they didn't know anything. In Park City, yes. They didn't even know that. They didn't know, truly, they didn't know anything Nanny about their had like anatomy. a whole diagram of the female like, anatomy okay. and they didn't know, like they'd never seen that in no. their lives. Like this is where you pee out of, this is where your child comes out of, and this is where you poop. And they were like in shock that they were separate and not one there big There were thing. three holes. They had no and these were like, No way! Women. Yes, yes, yes. They were completely in shock. Wow. And these were grown up. Women. And then I was like, well, you should get a mirror. And they were like, yeah, wow. And they were totally <laughs> horrified. Oh, and forget trying to explain periods. They did not understand this concept at all of like cycling and ovaries. And they just thought it was random. Yeah. They were like, what? And sometimes you have a kid and sometimes you don't. They didn't connect it to having a kid. They, <laughs> what? Nothing, no, nothing. Start over. These were grown women. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I, I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, how do you talk to about sex? with your children um, or do you pretty openly i guess i'm just assuming you do yeah so with the i guess kind of trying to keep it age appropriate so like the little one understands about anatomy that was where we started and so she knows what body parts you have and she and says the scientific name too. she does yeah we're like vulva and vagina and you know 
not the cuckoo or the whatever the heck. People give the strangest <laughs> names to body parts. Do you know what my parents had me call it? Oh, God. What? <laughs> my potato. Potato. <laughs> that doesn't even have an opening. <laughs> like, I know. I don't know. I it's a purse. Pocket and, they have, and they have Brooklyn accents, so they're like, oh, your potato. My oh, my <laughs> oh, my gosh. It doesn't even have an opening. <laughs> That's not even an analogy that makes sense. Hi, but people do all kinds. My cookie. There's so many. There's so many. Ew. And her daughters are here like, she has a vagina. He has a penis. She yes. has a vagina. Exactly. Yep. Um, but then her older sister got her period. And so now she, the little one knows what periods are. Mm-hmm. And they know, she knows that they happen. And so the older one, too, like we've talked about periods. We've talked about penetrative sex. We've talked a lot about like gender and what the meaning is of gender and gender fluidity and like uh, sexuality cool. and homosexuality and pansexuality and like all those different terms. And so she's super comfortable, I think, having a conversation about any of that. Mm-hmm. Kind Nanny of- teaches, she like made her own class in med school about what is it? Gender? Medicine and gender. Yeah. So her students do projects about trans patients and anything yeah it's important well and so i'm i get i'm asking these questions because i am studying to be a social worker and we just had a clinical topics a few weeks ago and about how as therapists to talk about sex with your clients and what kind of questions to ask so i have some of this fresh in my mind nice and it's funny because I would have never, going into this education, thought that I would be asking people, so do you masturbate? Do you like it? Does it feel good? Uh, What feels good? I did not see it coming, but I love talking about sex, so it's fine. (laughs) Um, So my question is, well, I'm not sure what my question is, but what do you have to say about pleasure and the pleasure gap and when you're talking to clients or children maybe not little children, but, you know, like you said, age appropriate about sex and pleasure and learning your body and things like that. I do think that that's something that has always been kind of in my mind is this this kind of crusade that for women to make sure that they don't treat sex as a functional activity, but that it is something pleasurable and that they need to find that pleasure. And that if their partner is not providing it, they need to educate their partner or find a new one. But <laughs> I feel like a lot of especially girls in the teen like category of age, like adolescents and teenagers, for them, it's more about pleasing the partner. And they really spend zero time trying to figure out, A, what's pleasurable for them and B, how to make that happen. It's more about um, using sex as a tool to keep him loyal or to keep right. him interested. You know, there's a lot of um, sex as a as a function, not as a not as a thing for enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. And part of that is because no one's being honest with them about what it can be. So they kind of grow up thinking, well, my parents say don't do it. So it must be something terrible like brushing your teeth. And then, (laughs) you know, uh, the guy says that I'm supposed to do it this way and that way because that's what he saw in a video. And okay, that must be normal. So they're getting so misinformed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really totally agree that it needs to start there. But then, I mean, how do you tell a 14 year old, like, listen, you should really touch yourself as often as you want to, you know, like that's kind of a difficult thing to bring up, especially without you just say it, but the parents, it's hard. But I mean, with, with your own kids, I mean, 
I mean, it's a brave new world for a lot of us and for a lot of us it's not, but for like-minded people who are interested in this, which I think our listeners are, just and we have a lot of parents yeah, that it might be uncomfortable to talk about masturbation and learning your body and what feels good. Um, but I know, I think I had a pretty, for the time, progressive sex education and nobody talked about pleasure and orgasm, mm. except that it happens, you know, right. how, how to get there. Never. I, I can't remember a time. Yeah, it's not. I mean, but that kind of goes back to sort of the foundations of our society, right? Where it's like, it's not about you having fun. It's all about producing children, producing children and you have a certain job and go have the and kids. not getting a disease. Exactly. You know, and right. well, the guys can figure out how to f- have fun because it's, you know, the pleasure is not as difficult for a man to find. Although I would certainly encourage any guy to also take a minute and explore what it is they enjoy and not just assume that penetrative sex is the end of the story for them either. Yeah, you're right. Thank you, Nanny, for answering my my inquiries. I'll, I'll follow up with an email with like 50 more questions for, for when you um, when you're not a di- not a director running a, a, a teaching hospital and making laws and raising your daughters, you can get to my email. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at my email. 207 unread emails right now. Ugh. Good. I know that something that Ali is having a lot of fun in, in her internship is talking to people of different cultures mm-hmm. and their view on love and marriage and relationships. Do you have a lot of fun interacting with special cases with people of just very different cultures of that, of where they just think that they're there for a job, that they're just there for a factory? Yeah, I mean, I think in Utah, actually, that came up for me in a very stark way with um, some of our patients who were there, there's a big pocket of people who had emigrated from Somalia. And there was a mm-hmm. lot of women who had had either clitoral removal or oh some God. sort of type of female circumcision. And I mean, talk about, you know, having your entire society teaching you that your role is to not enjoy sex. How much more blatantly can they pass that message on than to cut off the part that makes you enjoy it? Right. And so, but with these women, what was super fascinating to me was that they would have these procedures that part of the goal of which was to really narrow their vaginal opening so that not only were they not receiving pleasure from their clitoris, but it actually was painful to have intercourse because it was so narrow. Oh my gosh. But after a baby comes through, everything sort of opens up and tears and their request was put me back the way I was. Wow. They wanted it back. They wanted their previous shape back. They weren't interested in having that sort of natural fix remain. They wanted to go back to clothes because that's what they felt like was important for them. And, and when so, you do the epizimiati, you just keep going? Or is it is well, in their to case, do that? So in their case, it was so scarred shut that where the baby had come through, it was sort of torn open in a way where the edges were raw and bleeding. And so you would either sew it back together the way it was, or you would have to do some sewing on the edges to leave it open. Either way, you had to do something. Wow. But their request was do it how it was. Wow. Yeah. Well, because if you go through your, you know, you're getting the message, like, that's how it's supposed to be. That's right. how it's supposed to be. That's virtuous. That's whatever. Right. Then when you lose that, you feel like you're losing something. And Betty mentioned this show in a previous episode called uh, Sex and Love Around the World. And there was an episode about Lebanon. And the women were going to like, they were going to medical spas asking the plastic surgeon to 
give them their hymen back. And it's the same reason because in their culture and the message that they got, which we know that your hymen can break a million different ways. Right. Yeah, their whole life, they're like, your hymen, your hymen, your hymen. It's virtuous. It's special. It's it, whatever. And so when women, women were not wanting to get married because they knew marriage meant sex and sex meant losing their hymen. So women that did get married would go to this medical facility, whatever it is, plastic surgeon, and ask for their hymen I don't know, to be put back, sewed back together. I don't know how it works. I'm in transplant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is insane in, in and of itself because girls have alterations to their hymen from just gymnastics, like from running around and being kids, like having nothing to do with intercourse. Right. Riding a horse, whatever. But it's all about perception. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I'm here thinking like, I can't believe those women did that. That's crazy. But women in our culture go to the doctor to get their boobs bigger mm-hmm. and to get, or get their hairs burned off. <laughs> like us. <laughs> like us. We're going to get our hairs burned off. Well, too, here in America, in the United States of America, like labiaplasty is super popular. And that's all aesthetic because we've got the message that our vaginas are ugly or they, they should look a certain way. Is that something you do or a plastic surgeon? It's something that I will not ever do out of just the ethics of it. But yeah, a general GYN could do it. Oh, wow. I mean, there are rare cases where like the labia are literally so long that they painful. The friction from just wearing something causes bleeding. Like, okay, fine. But just because just because labias are just beautiful. You got to go somewhere else. Dr. Nanny doesn't have time for you. No, ma'am. Oh, talking about going somewhere else. Can you talk really, really briefly? I think it's really um, like a cool thing about being an OBGYN about your stance on abortion, not your stance. You don't have to talk about that, but talk about how when you become an OBGYN, you have to say if you're going to do it or not do it. And then you have to do it always or not do it at all. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of discussion that we go through with our trainees about, about abortion. And part of my residency, well, actually every residency in the country, part of what they need to do to be accredited is offer abortion training. But there is this whole question of should people have to opt in or opt out of that? Should it be required? And so I think the lady that um, runs the Planned Parenthood here, the doctor that I work with that does that, she handles it, I think, brilliantly. And her stance on it is not so much that like you can say, I don't want anything to do with abortion training and I I don't want to learn anything about this. Like she sort of says that's not a choice. You have to at least learn what it is. Because inevitably, one day, a patient of yours will have had one. Just because you're not the one that performed it doesn't mean that they didn't get it. And you have to know how to deal with the complications. You have to know what it means to have an abortion done. You have to know what the actual process is. So all of my residents get at least some training, whether it's they're just in the room while the patient's being counseled about it, and then they step out and they don't participate in anything else. Or they're there from the beginning through the end, and they're the ones holding the instrument and performing the actual abortion. But there is definitely, it's important to kind of figure out who you are and what you believe and either do them or not, because it's definitely not fair or ethical as a physician to say, well, I will do them for these certain patients, but not for these others. Like you have to just either provide a service or you don't because you don't get to discriminate, basically. Mm. If you work publicly, do you have a choice or is that only for private doctors? No, everybody does have a choice. So whether you work at a university or in a private practice or in a health department, every single provider has a choice about 
whether or not they're going to perform certain procedures. A lot of people would say that you have an ethical obligation if you don't personally perform them to at least refer a patient to somebody who will if they want one. Like, for example, mm-hmm. I will just flat out tell you our little brother has Down syndrome and I, well, my little brother, her big brother, <laughs> um, and I could never perform abortions because a good reason or a good proportion of people perform them because their baby has some kind of chromosomal problem. And so she's in the case of, oh, yeah, I'll do it if your baby is this, but not. Right. So it's like I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, well, I'll do it for this person, but not for this other person who's aborting their baby who has trisomy 21. So what I've adopted is I'm a thousand percent comfortable with counseling people about, okay, here's what you can expect. And here's what the procedure's like. And here's where you would go. And here's how it feels. And if if this is what you want, here's my like five friends who do them and they're all wonderful doctors and I can call one of them for you today. So that's sort of my stance on it. But I would say that anybody who has whatever reason, whether it's because they have a religious objection or whatever it is, they should not forsake those patients because your personal decision should not impact your patients. That's a really good explanation. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, it is. This is what I love about her the most. That she has the best explanations for everything. (laughs) Every time I'm I'm anxious about something or I don't understand something or I'm just like, let me ask Nanny because whatever she thinks, that's that's what I think too. (laughs) (laughs) Because she explains things so well. I think that's one of her gifts. (laughs) Should we get to our questions? Yes. Okay, Nanny. I'm ready. What excites you? What excites me? My children, every day learning what they're learning and seeing what they're doing and watching them grow and develop. I mean, I just, they make me so happy. And what is something that people assume about you that may not be true? You know what? This is my favorite. I feel like people assume that I am potentially just making medical decisions out of what's convenient for me or out of what I think um, without any regard to like their knowledge of their bodies or you know, their personal desires. Like, listen, I'm not running around labor and delivery with a scalpel in my hand waiting for the next person to do a C-section on. That's not my joy and pride. I am here to take care of you (laughs) and your fetus to the optimal health of both of you. And if that includes a C-section, well, then that's what it includes. But that doesn't mean I'm out to get you and your baby because I want to go take a nap. Um, (laughs) I'm also not prescribing medication. Like, I will tell you, one of my biggest pet peeves in life is I'll prescribe a patient an antibiotic or a a blood pressure medication and the next thing they'll say is, is this safe for the pregnancy? And I want to be like, oh my God, you're pregnant. Like we didn't just spend the last 45 minutes discussing your pregnancy. <laughs> yes, it's safe for your baby. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I think that is like the biggest assumption people make that makes me bananas. I have a question since I have you. Anything. And this is, I guess, kind of personal because it's something that goes on my mind a lot. So I am on antidepressants. Um, an SSRI. And what I've learned is that there's not a lot of research on um, pregnant women on SSRIs. I, and I, I mean, I'm not pregnant or planning to be pregnant anytime soon. However, a future fear that I have is going off my antidepressant for the health of the fetus. Is there any insight you can give me there? Yes. So there's actually a ton of research um, that could be very helpful for you. See all the misinformation out there. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on the particular SSRI you're on, we can actually talk more offline. But um, the general story (laughs) is a long time ago, 
and by a long time ago, I mean like in the 90s and early 2000s, people had um, thought that SSRIs were connected to fetal cardiac defects, but we've actually shown over and over and over in research that that is not true, that SSRIs do not cause heart defects in fetuses, and that actually what is unsafe is for a mom to have uncontrolled depression or anxiety throughout her pregnancy. So our strong recommendation is that if a woman requires a medication like an SSRI to keep her health intact, that's what she should do. She should take the medication. There's one little like, but, um, and that's related to the end of the pregnancy. So there is this condition called PPHN, which is persistent pulmonary. It, it has to do with the lungs and the circulation of the fetus and the transition from not breathing oxygen to actually breathing air that Anyway, the it can be seen in newborns whose moms were taking an SSRI toward the end of their pregnancy, and it can actually be lethal. It's a very serious potential complication. It's extremely rare. It does not happen in the vast majority of women who take SSRIs, but it is a risk. So what I will counsel my patients is that if you feel like your mental health can handle a stop, to go ahead and stop at about 34, 35 weeks, give yourself about a month or so before your baby's born of no medication so that their risk of PPHN is decreased. And then on the day you deliver, begin taking your medication again. But of course, that's also right. dependent on the severity of the depression and anxiety, because if a mom is going to be so depressed that she's suicidal, it is completely not worth it for this very low likelihood of the baby developing PPHN. So it's always kind of a risk benefits discussion with the patient. But that's my one like, mm, just in case. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Medical counsel on the podcast. I'm here. <laughs> Next time we have you, we'll take like live calls or something. Yeah. I did that on Betty's Instagram one day and it was so fun. I was one of the people who sent uh, a question and you answered it. I love it. <laughs> okay. So next question is, Nanny, what breaks your heart? Oh, Your achy, breaky heart. My achy, breaky heart. Going home. No. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Layla was just crying and crying about leaving Tampa to go home tomorrow. Mm. And she said the worst part about going home is her broken heart. <laughs> oh, so sad. You know, um, what breaks my heart are bad things happen that are preventable. Mm. So a certain number of terrible things are going to happen that are not preventable. And that's just terrible luck. And that's the tragedy of, of the human condition. But some things are preventable, and it's so sad when you see them unfold before you. So one example that comes to mind over and over is, it's going to be a little controversial, but home birth and women who choose to pursue home birth, in some percentage of them, it goes tragically wrong. And you see these babies come in and they are comatose or they are near death or they do in fact die. And you just see all these preventable things that ha that mom chosen to labor and deliver in a hospital would have gone very differently. So I think that is one of the most mm. difficult things to come across. Wow. Okay. And what gives you hope? Hmm. My students. So you see these eager young minds. Everybody and, says that. <laughs> oh, I love it. Like there's nothing on this planet. I said this on the other podcast. Like yeah. the first time you go in the operating room with a first year resident and they do their first C-section ever and their little eyes just like Ooh, and they're so excited and <laughs> and they I don't know I just I love that it's this this constant infusion of new young minds and you know that among them somewhere somebody's going to be the one that's going to go make a discovery that changes everything and it's just this mm. I don't know they're so inspiring that's awesome I guess it's because I'm your sister but I and I know that everything's going to be okay but I think it's funny every time I hear somebody say that they went to a doctor and a student saw them <gasps> and I'm like 
the oh, horror but wow. i know but i know for and you know they're like oh and then the student came and i'm like well good <laughs> let them <laughs> they came to see you but i know it's because i'm your sister and i know that those people are under good they watch. are so supervised that's what i was gonna say because i mean i'm not in medicine but i'm an intern and people see me for mental health care so you know i oh i have um this like internalized fear that people are going to be like an intern. However, <laughs> I have individual supervision, group supervision, supervision of groups. Like I am so highly supervised that I, I think that it's you're better off maybe seeing an intern than somebody, potentially somebody else. So that's been proven through research. People have studied that and there are better health outcomes when patients go to an academic health center because of exactly that. So the medical student comes to see you first and then the resident comes to back up the medical student and then the attending comes to back up the resident. And by then you've had four different minds who are all medical doctors who are obviously not, you know, bozos Monkeys. off the street. You know, everybody putting their mind on your problem and it's much to the patient's benefit. So yes, absolutely. Medical education is the way to go. <laughs> I take my kids to see residents for their pediatric care for that same reason. I feel like it's superior. Wow, you're so smart. <laughs> she is. <laughs> I just talk good. <laughs> all right. So now the fun part. I guess all the parts are fun, especially yes. when we have yeah, a fun Yeah, this is a very fun episode. Yeah, I love it. So our next question is, or our next announcement is the people need to know. Oh. So in this part, you talk about a book you're reading, which you should see her nightstand and her end table. And there's just books all over this whole house. <laughs> there's just mountains of books. It's but great. <laughs> you either pick one book or one TV show or Netflix special documentary that you think the people should know about. Okay. there. I was going to talk about the Mindy Project, but now you said books. So there is a <laughs> book that I feel like every human being should read. And it's called When Breath Becomes Air. And the author is Paul Kalanathi, I think is his last name. And it's this man who discovered during his neurosurgery residency that he had lung cancer. And it talks about him and like his last years on earth. And oh my goodness, bring tissues because you will cry. But it is beautiful. And then the epilogue is written by his wife, who's also a doctor. And it's just, it's amazing. It's gorgeous and wonderful. Wow. That's a good one. So Allie, what's yours? I am a little true crime obsessed ooh. because do you, was that a bad ooh or a good ooh? No, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if anybody is familiar with the Gypsy Rose Blanchard story, but I heard this on, I think it was my favorite murder. I heard it like maybe one year ago about the Gypsy Rose Blanchard story, which is this probably the most famous case of Munchausen by proxy in the United States. And so after the podcast, uh, which was, I believe, my favorite murder, they recommended a documentary on HBO called Mommy Dead and Dearest, mm. and which goes through the whole story. I won't I won't give anything away, but my jaw is just like on the ground and like the less you know about it the yes. more your jaw is going to go on the ground so I won't say too much many just googled it and yeah I know I did read a quick thing about that that's so weird that you mentioned it I did read like a quick thing about that like two days ago Hulu just there's two episodes out about this and it's really 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 graphic and hard to watch but if you're sick in the head and you like 
true crime <laughs> stuff, uh, um, you should watch the act. But do it in the order. Listen to the podcast. If you type in in your podcast app in the search bar, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, you'll find a podcast about it. So listen to that first. Then oh, watch wow. Mommy Dead and Dearest on HBO. It's a documentary. And then start the act on Hulu. Do you and- have your PhD yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm teaching doctoral students on the Gypsy <laughs> Rose Blanchard. We get PhD and things. <laughs> Nanny's Googling it on her phone and her desk. I am in shock. This looks so crazy. Yeah, it's really a wild, wild, wild story. Yeah, so that is my people need to know. Betty, what do the people need to know? Okay, for me, I actually, I was like, what do the people need to know? I was thinking and thinking and thinking, but I'm going to say a different one that nobody's mentioned, a board game. And Oh, I, okay. I'm so excited about this. Yes, so I played with, I actually played with you guys a few years ago, but then I played again with Hope a couple nights ago. It's a board game called Ticket to Ride, and we played the European version, and it's just a cool board game where you have to use a lot of logic, a lot of planning, a lot of math, a lot of thinking, and there is some luck involved, but it is a really cool game that if you just like mind games, if you like to do mental gymnastics, like Nanny mentioned earlier, it's a really cool game, Ticket to Ride, and we played the Europe version. Cool. Thank you, Nanny, for coming on here and sharing everything you did and your wisdom and your story. And I'm so happy to have finally been introduced to you. And you're not just um, an imaginary friend that Betty made up. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to thank our listeners. Your support always helps us get the word out there. So keep on liking and sharing. And if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, text it to them. Betty and I send each other podcasts back and forth all the time. It's really easy to do, especially on the Apple Podcast app. Um, And make sure you're following us on social media at DCNCM on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. And as always, if you leave us a review telling us about a dream you're chasing or a change you're making, when we get enough of them, we will read them on a future episode. So I want to thank our beautiful dream chaser and change maker community. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you, Nanny, for speaking like we always talk, but into this microphone this one time. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. This is so fun. So in the words of Maya Angelou, I'm interested in women's health because I'm a woman. I'd be a darn fool not to be on my own side. Is that Ooh, a good one? That's a good one. Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 I said so.